Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. My daughter has a final tomorrow. Trust me, this ties into my sermon. For the last semester, she has had a professor who has repeatedly used the phrase, the only true God, which caused my daughter to believe that he was perhaps a Christian. Because in her mind, every time she heard the phrase, the only true God, she assumed that he was talking about the biblical God, Yahweh. So the other day, she was talking to some of her classmates, and she said that she believed the professor was a Christian. He overheard it. He corrected her. And I said to her, Muslim, right? And she said, yeah, how did you know? I said, because they believe that Allah is the only true God. So the Muslims believe that they know who the true God is if you talk to a Baha'i. I don't know how much you know about the Bahu'Allah, but the idea behind the Baha'i faith is that all of the prophets of all the ages, starting from Noah through Moses through Abraham, or Abraham through Moses, and all the prophets, Elijah and all of them, were found embodied in the reincarnation of all the prophets, including Jesus were found in the body of the Bahu'u'llah, who then spent most of his life in prison in Iran, which was Persia back then. So they believe that they have found the incarnation of the only true God. If you talk to the uh, Hare Krishnas, they will tell you Krishna is the God that they worship. If you talk to a Hindu, they will tell you that they have several gods that they believe are true and genuine gods, whether it's Rama or whether it's Vishnu, or they have different gods for different categories of life. If you talk to the Buddhists, they will tell you that there is a whole pantheon of gods. There's a great many gods for you to pick from, and that Jesus is just one of the many gods that you can choose to worship. Well, in the Bible, Yahweh considers himself to be and repeatedly announces himself to be the only true God, the only genuine God. And so when he chooses a people group, the descendants of Abraham, when he chooses Israel, he not only puts them into slavery for 400 years in Egypt, grows them up as a nation and brings them out, but then he takes them to Mount Sinai before he even takes them to the promised land, and he gives them a series of commandments, not suggestions, commandments. And the first two of those commandments have to do with, I'm the only true God. He starts right out with, you'll have no other gods before me. And then right behind that, don't make graven images. Don't have idols. Don't bow down and worship anything else except me. Because God, Yahweh, the only true God, is the only God who deserves worship. Therefore, his people, who he has chosen, should not be worshiping any other gods. The worship of any other gods is considered a form of harlotry in God's eyes. Well, the last couple of weeks, we have been looking at Ezekiel's prophecies against specifically Jerusalem, 
because of the way that they have erred in their following of Yahweh. But now this week, starting at verse 6, and we're going to try to look at 6 and 7 if we can make it tonight, God is going to turn his attention to the northern kingdom. The same way that he refers to the southern kingdom as Jerusalem generally, because Jerusalem is the seat of his worship. Jerusalem is the place where he has chosen to place his name. Jerusalem is where his temple is. So that's the very center of the Yahweh worship. Well, there is no such place in the northern kingdom. And so God is going to have Ezekiel prophesy against the mountains of Israel. And the reason specifically that God chooses to prophesy <coughs> against the mountains of Israel is because that is the very place where they have set up idol worship. God knew this was coming. Yahweh knew this was going to happen. And he repeatedly told Israel not to do it. He set out continuous standards against any form of idol worship and especially idol worship in high places or up on mountains or in groves or the worship of the Ashtoreth. He names that all specifically and yet Israel does that very thing which is the reason that starting in Ezekiel 6, Ezekiel is going to prophesy against Israel specifically because they did the very thing. God said, I know you're going to do this, don't do it. And then they did it. So we're going to start tonight by looking at a couple of the passages where God says, don't do it. When I put you in your land, when I give you the land that belongs currently to your enemies and to the Canaanites, don't do what they do. Don't worship the gods they worship. Don't set up idols and altars in the high places and in the groves and in the Asherah. Don't, don't do any of that. And yet the people did it. And so this is the reason that Ezekiel 6 can start right out with curses against Israel because they've done the very thing that God specifically said, don't do. Now, any of us who are parents know how frustrating it is when we say to our children, don't do this, and we're real specific, don't do this thing. Yeah, I, I see the look. Yeah. And then they do it anyway. And you want to say to them, who sucked the brain out of your head? Because I used English language words to you and told you, don't do that. And then you did it because human beings are just innately rebellious. Well, Israel suffers the same fate. God speaks to them in their own language, gives them laws, sets it in stone, gives them prophets, sends them warnings, says, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, over and over again, and they do exactly that. Not only demonstrating God's absolute sovereignty and knowing they were going to do it, but God is without blame for punishing them for having done it. So we're going to start tonight in the book of Deuteronomy, in a bit of the Deuteronomical law. You know how much I enjoy saying Deuteronomical. It's just a fun word. So turn to Deuteronomy 12, and we're going to start right at verse 1. Deuteronomy 12. Starting right at verse 1. These are the statutes and the judgments which you shall carefully observe in the land which the Lord, 
the God of your fathers, has given you to possess as long as you live on the earth. That, by the way, shows that the promise of the land is a perpetual promise. As long as you live on the earth, this land belongs to you. So that's why it's even more dramatic that God has driven him out of that land. But you can also see why God, in his faithfulness, promises to bring them back to that land. Because God has given them that land in perpetuity. So before he even takes them into that land, he says, these are the statutes and the judgments which you will carefully observe in that land. Verse 2, you shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. And you shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and burn their ashram with fire. And you shall cut down the engraved images of their gods and you shall obliterate their name from that place. You shall not act like this toward the Lord your God. And see that capital L-O-R-D there? That's the proper name of God. It's been translated as Lord, capital L-O-R-D. But that's Yahweh, your Adonai. I am the God of Israel, and you will not be like that toward me, toward the other gods, toward the fake gods. Destroy their altars, destroy their names, drive them out of the land, never mention them again. But you're not going to be that way toward me. I'm going to be the only God. You're going to worship me. So he's made a clear distinction between himself and all the other gods who are or ever were in the land that God is giving to Israel. Starting then at verse 5, he says, But you shall seek the Lord at the place which the Lord your God shall choose from all your tribes. We know that that is Jerusalem. To establish his name there for his dwelling, and there you shall come. So Jerusalem is the place where God's going to set his name. That's where his worship is going to be. That's where his temple is going to be. And you are all required to come to Jerusalem to worship Yahweh. Which is why when they set up places of worship in the north, God has specifically said right here, no, you come to Jerusalem because that's the place where my worship's going to be. That's where my temple is. That's where my priests are going to be. Come there. And of course, Israel is going to apostatize. They're going to decide for themselves that they're going to set up their own places of worship. And they're going to go worship the other gods, the very gods that Israel is told don't worship those gods. Verse 5, you shall seek the Lord at the place which the Lord your God shall choose from all your tribes to establish his name there for his dwelling, and there you shall come. And there you shall bring your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the contribution of your hand, your votive offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. There also you and your households shall eat before the Lord your God. And rejoice in all your undertakings in which the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall not do at all what we are doing here today, which is every man doing whatever is right in his own eyes. So God's very clear. I'm going to prescribe my worship. I'm going to tell you where it's going to be. I'm going to tell you what offerings to bring me. I'm going to tell you when you're going to come three times a year. And you're not going to do what's right in your own eyes. You're not going to decide for yourself the way that you're going to worship God. So 
right away, before they even get into the promised land, God is really, really specific about who, about where, about what not to do, about what you do do. And so he's very clear, very specific. Turn to 1 Kings for just a moment. Because you know that then God is going to separate the northern from the southern kingdom. Jeroboam is going to become the king in the north. Rehoboam is going to become the king in the south. Rehoboam is a direct descendant of David, so he sits on David's throne. And starting from 1 Kings verse 21, 1 Kings 14 verse 21... God says, now Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he became king. He reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city which the Lord had chosen from all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. Okay, there's the satisfaction of the very thing God had said. When I take you into the land, I'm going to pick a place from among all your tribes. That's going to be the place of of my worship, and you have to come there in order to worship me. So now we know where that place is. It's in Jerusalem, the city that the Lord had chosen from all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. And his mother's name was Naamah the Amoritess. And Judah the southern kingdom, did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him to jealousy more than all that their fathers had done with the sins which they committed. For they built for themselves high places. What did God tell them not to do? Smash all the high places. Get rid of the mountaintop and hill worship. Get rid of all those altars. Do not worship foreign gods in high places. So they built for themselves high places and sacred pillars. And God said, get rid of the ashram because those are the foreign gods, the worship of the foreign gods. Get rid of, destroy all the ashram. Verse 23 says, and they built ashram on every high hill and beneath every luxuriant tree. And there were also male cult prostitutes in the land. They did according to to the abominations of the nations which the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. So what does that tell you? God said, don't do what the people do who are currently in the land. You're going to dispossess those people. You're going to inherit the land. Don't do what they did. So verse 24 tells us, they did according to the abominations of the nations which the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. They did the exact thing God said not to. Very specifically, God said, don't do these things. They did them anyway. Turn to 2 Kings. As long as you're in 1 Kings, let's do this. Turn to 2 Kings 17. 2 Kings 17. Starting at verse 7. And we're going to read a big chunk here, all the way down to verse 20. This came about because the sons of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God. This is about Hosea and his reign over Israel and then Israel falling captive to the king of Assyria. So this is an explanation of why God allowed Israel, the northern tribes, to fall to the king of Assyria. This came about because the sons of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up from the land of Egypt 
from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and they had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel. And they walked in the customs of the kings of Israel, which they had introduced. The sons of Israel did things secretly, which were not right against Yahweh, their God. Moreover, they built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city. They set for themselves sacred pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree, and they burned incense on all the high places, as the nations did which the Lord had carried away to exile before them, and they did evil things provoking the Lord. They served idols, concerning which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this thing. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments, my statutes, according to all the law which I commanded your fathers and which I sent to you through my servants, the prophets. However, they did not listen, but they stiffened their neck like their fathers who did not believe in the Lord their God. They rejected his statutes and his covenants, which he had made with their fathers and his warnings with which he had warned them. And they followed vanity and became vain. And they went after the nations that surrounded them concerning which the Lord had commanded them not to do like them. They forsook the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves molten images, even two calves, and made an Asherah, and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. Then they made their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire and practiced divination and enchantments and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him. So the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his sight. None was left except the tribe of Judah. Also Judah did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs which Israel had introduced. The Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hands of the plunderers until he had cast them out of his sight. All I'm trying to show you here is that God had taken the time, knowing full well what kind of people he was dealing with, knowing what they were going to do. He told them specifically, don't do it. I'm the only God. You'll have no other gods before me. Don't make idols. Don't make graven images so that you'll bow down and worship them. Don't be like the Canaanites. Don't be like the people that I'm going to drive out of your land before you. Be a separate people. Be my people uniquely. They didn't do it. They just couldn't do it. Turn to Jeremiah 2 for just a moment. Well, you don't need to turn there. It's only two verses. I'll read it. Well, yes, turn to Jeremiah 2 because we're also going to look at Jeremiah 3. So uh, turn to Jeremiah 2. Starting at verse 19, Jeremiah is, of course, very similar in so many ways to Ezekiel, prophesying the same basic things to the same people. Jeremiah says, starting at verse 19, your own wickedness will correct you and your apostasies will reprove you. Know, therefore, and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God 
and the dread of me, the fear of me, is not in you, declares the Lord of hosts. You don't fear me. If you had any fear of me, if you understood my own jealousy, if you understood my own wrath and the way that I hate sin and must always satisfy my own righteous judgment and my own justice, if you understood that, then you would have a genuine reverence for me and you would fear me. But the very fact that you've done these things proves that you have no genuine dread of me. Starting at verse 20, for long ago, I broke your yoke and tore off your bonds. But you said to me, I will not serve. For on every high hill and under every green tree, you have lain down as a harlot. So now Jeremiah starts that harlot language. You're going to see it picked up in Ezekiel. It's that language of God being jealous for Israel as a wife and seeing her as a harlot who has committed her harlotries with all these other foreign lovers, all of these other gods that she has worshipped, that she has built the ashram and the high places to. He sees it. He likens it. He typifies it as I'm the husband who took you to wife and then you committed whoredoms against me. And he does this on purpose, I think, in the intention of getting Israel to understand how truly heinous their sin against God is. He doesn't just say, it's as if you stole something I didn't care about. You know, they'd be like, well, all right. It's not just you borrowed the car on Thursday without telling me. I mean, he went right for the deepest relationship there is, that husband-wife relationship, and went right for harlotry so that they would understand on an emotional level how God perceived their idolatry and their chasing of foreign gods. In Jeremiah chapter 3, starting at verse 6, Then the Lord said to me in the days of Josiah the king, Have you seen what faithless Israel did? She went up on every high hill and every green tree, and she was a harlot there. I thought, after she has done all these things, she will return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. By the way, Ezekiel is going to pick up that same idea, that Israel and Judah are like two erring sisters who committed their harlotries against God who was their husband. That's going to be picked up in Ezekiel, that same concept. And in fact, Ezekiel is going to cast it all the way back to Egypt. He's going to say that God saw them as a hola and a holabah all the way back in Egypt. He knew that they were going to divide, that he was going to split them, that they were going to commit their harlotries from the very time that he chose them. Which, again, I, I can't help but say I really appreciate that God knew that's what they were going to be like when he chose them, but he chose them anyway. If God foresaw what people were going to be like and then based his decision on that, then we'd all be in trouble. Because he'd see immediately what Steve was going to be like and go, ah, no, no siree Bob, not doing that. Not that God has ever said no siree Bob. But no siree Gabriel, we're not going to do that. But God knew what they were going to be like, and he chose them anyway. So I thought, 
After she has done all these things, she'll return to me. But she did not, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. Verse 8, And I saw that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel, I had sent her away and given her a writ of divorce, yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear. But she went and was a harlot also. Because of the lightness of her harlotry, she polluted the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. Do you understand what God's getting at there? He's saying she made idols out of stones. She made idols out of trees. She bowed herself down and she worshipped them. So God said that's like committing harlotry with stones and trees. Verse 10, and yet in spite of all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but rather in deception, declares the Lord. Starting then at verse 11, and the Lord said to me, faithless Israel has proved herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, return faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look upon you in anger, for I am gracious, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your iniquity, that you have transgressed against the Lord your God, and have scattered your favors to the strangers under every green tree, and you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless sons, declares the Lord, for I am a master to you. And I will take you, one from a city, and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. And I will give you shepherds after my own heart, who will feed you on knowledge and understanding. Okay, so Jeremiah is introducing the concept of the remnant. The idea that even if all of national Israel is not saved, God is going to start bringing out people, one from a city, two from a family. He's going to start drawing out a remnant of Israel who he's going to start rebuilding Israel with until he accomplishes the nation, the kingdom that he intended them to be. Turn to Hosea. You knew I had to end up in Hosea before we went any further. Hosea chapter 4 and then we'll finally look at Ezekiel. Hosea chapter 4, we'll just read two verses, verse 12 and 13. My people consult their wooden idol, and their diviner's wand informs them. For a spirit of harlotry has led them astray, and they have played the harlot, departing from their God. They offer sacrifices on the tops of the mountains, and burn incense on the hills, under oak, poplar, and terebinth, because their shade is pleasant. Therefore, your daughters play the harlot, and your brides commit adultery. Okay, so I wanted to look at just those passages, and there are many, many more that we could certainly look at. 
where God has plainly told Israel to be careful with their worship to make sure that they worship him alone and that they don't worship any foreign gods. The place where they worshiped the foreign gods was on the high mountains and under every pleasant tree in the ashram, in the groves. That is why God, starting in Ezekiel 6, is going to say to Ezekiel, Son of man, set your face toward the mountains of Israel and prophesy against them. That's why the mountains. The same way that he said prophesy against Jerusalem, because that was the seat of God's worship, this is the seat of foreign worship and the foreign gods, so he's going to prophesy against the mountains of the northern kingdom, Israel, because that's where the golden calves were set up, that's where the ashram were, that's where the foreign worship was. Thus endeth the introduction. Ezekiel 6, starting right at verse 1. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face toward the mountains of Israel and prophesy against them. And say, Mountains of Israel, listen to the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God, Adonai and Yahweh Adonai, these are the proper names of God. This is God specifically naming himself so that there's no confusion about which God, about what God. It's not any of the foreign gods or the Canaanite gods. This is the God of Israel, the God of Israel's forefathers, the God who brought them out of Egypt, the God who made promises to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. It's that God, Yahweh God. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains, to the hills, to the ravines, and the valleys, there it is. Those are all the places of the foreign worship. Behold, I myself am going to bring a sword on you, and I will destroy your high places. So what did he tell Israel to do when he brought them out of Egypt? You're going into a land where the Canaanites are. When you get there, destroy all the high places. They didn't do it. Destroy all the ashram and the groves. They didn't do it. So now God says, behold, I'm going to do it. That's how jealous God is for his own name and his own reputation. If you won't stop worshiping the other gods, I'll destroy the altars. I'll destroy the groves. I'll destroy the places where you're worshiping because I demand that I singularly receive all the worship that I'm due. So I myself am going to bring a sword on you and I will destroy your high places so your altars will become desolate and your incense altars will be smashed and I shall make your slain fall in front of your idols. Do you understand what God's doing there? It's the same thing that God did in Egypt when he brought the plagues and how those plagues all connected to the gods of Egypt. He was showing that he was the true God and that the other Egyptian gods had no power against him. That if he wanted to hand out frog plagues, that none of the gods of the Nile could do anything about it. If he wanted to bring about insect plagues, none of their insect gods could do anything about it. And if he wanted to kill all their firstborn None of their sun gods or any of their preserving gods could do anything about it. So now God says, I'm going to destroy all the places where you're worshiping the stone and the wood. And then I'm going to make sure that you fall down dead in front of your idols. Because your idols aren't going to be able to help you. 
They're not going to be able to raise you up. They're not going to be able to stop my hand of judgment against you because they're just stone and wood. And I'm going to prove that by killing you in front of your idols. God is jealous for his own name. And we ought to know that. And we certainly ought to act like that. So your altars will become desolate. And your incense altars will be smashed, and I shall make your slain fall in front of your idols. I shall also lay the dead bodies of the sons of Israel in front of their idols, and I shall scatter your bones around your altars. So God's making it very clear that when he doles out judgment against the people who have worshipped these idols, that he's going to stack up bodies and bones in front of their altars, and they're not going to be any help. Because God is the one singular God. Yahweh is the one singular God over whom the other gods have absolutely no authority. So verse 6, In all your dwellings, cities will become waste, and the high places will become desolate that your altars may become waste and desolate. Your idols may be broken and brought to an end. Your incense altars may be cut down and your works may be blotted out. And the slain will fall among you and you will know that I am the Lord. I know that in so much of modern Christianity, certainly I don't want to call the Joel Osteen version of whatever they're doing. I don't want to call that Christianity. But in that errant version of God loves everybody Christianity, you can't talk about a God like this who is willing to demonstrate himself, who is willing to justify himself, who is willing to announce his own authority and be jealous for his own worship in such a way that he's willing to kill people for the purpose of knowing that he's the Lord. Doing things that to our modern mind just seem treacherous, especially if you're one of those humanistic up, up, up with people. If you just believe that people are inherently good, then you don't want know what to do about a God like this. It's only if you understand that people are genuinely sinful before a righteous and a holy God that you can understand that God is willing to defend his own righteousness and his own holiness. So he's willing to kill and he's willing to destroy their works and he's willing to bring the slain to fall among you so that you will know that I am, capital L-O-R-D, I am Yahweh. I'm the one who began by saying, you're not going to have any other gods before me. That's my commandment. That's not a suggestion. And if you do have other gods before me, I'll destroy you and I'll destroy them because I began by telling you I'm not having it. I'm not having any other gods before me. Verse 8. However, here comes that remnant language that we saw in Jeremiah. However, I shall leave a remnant for you will have those who have escaped the sword among the nations when you are scattered among the countries. 
So God even takes credit for scattering them among the Gentile nations. He knows who they are. He knows where they are. He knows where he has scattered them. And he's perfectly capable of restoring them exactly like we saw out of Jeremiah. He's perfectly capable of bringing them back to their land and reestablishing them as a nation and even as a chaste virgin, as we have read time and time again. So he's fully capable of both destroying and restoring national Israel. So he's going to keep a remnant to himself so that he can keep all the promises that he's ever made from Abraham forward to Israel. Then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations to which they have been carried off captive. How I have been hurt by their adulterous hearts which turned away from me and by their eyes which played the harlot after their idols and they will hate themselves they will loathe themselves in their own sight for the evils which they have committed for all their abominations I know I keep saying and, and here it is demonstrated again that when God reveals himself to people and you certainly see this throughout the New Testament one of the first gifts that God gives to people via his own Holy Spirit is not just faith but he gives them repentance and they see the need for their own repentance because they recognize that they are sinners. And I keep arguing that that's a gift from God. Because if God doesn't show you how sinful you are, you're not going to see your need for a savior. You're not going to run toward God. You're going to run away from him in your own self-sufficiency. Here's God doing the same thing again, saying, I'm going to take that remnant to myself and they're going to recognize everything that they've done and how they've played the harlot, and then they will loathe themselves. And notice that God does not do the people-pleasing thing and say, and I'll pat them on the head and say, there, there, you're fine. You're good people. Your best life now. Instead, what he says to them is, you're going to loathe yourself because you're going to recognize that I'm everything that I am your restoration, I am your only hope, I am a gracious and good God. You will loathe yourselves in the sight, in their own sight, for all the evils which they have committed and for all their abominations. And then they will know that I'm the Lord after they loathe themselves, after they recognize their abominations, after they recognize how they have turned from the true God who had betrothed them, then they're going to recognize their own sinfulness, their own depravity. They will loathe themselves for that, and then they are going to know that he is the Lord. That's the process. It's the same process you see in the New Testament. It's why Jesus said things like, well, men don't seek a physician. If you think you're fine, if you think you're well, you don't see any need for a savior. God must first make sure that you understand your own sinfulness and depravity, and then he grants you the ability to repent, and then he gives you the faith in Christ so that he gets all the glory and the honor in everything that results in your salvation. But it's how he's always worked. All the way back to Israel, he worked that way. Then you will know that I am the Lord. I have not said in vain that I would inflict this disaster on them. That goes all the way back to the law. That goes all the way back to Sinai. God said, here's what you do. Don't chase after other idols. Don't chase after other gods. If you do, 
I'm going to drive you out of your land. I'm going to bring famines. I'm going to hold back the rain. I'm going to bring in the wild animals. I'm going to bring down your enemies on you. He told them all that at the very beginning of the relationship. And because God is so faithful to his own word, he ends up saying, I told you I was going to do it. And you weren't faithful. So I'm doing it because I am faithful. What I say happens. If I tell you I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. And by the way, that's the same God who keeps saying to Israel, and I'm going to restore you. And I'm going to bring you back to your land. So I see the judgment of God here and the scattering of Israel as evidence of God's faithfulness to the word of restoration. If he would do this to them, which seems quite outrageous, then what's to prevent him from bringing them back and restoring them and doing all the things he said he was going to do for them, which is kind of equally outrageous. At this point in the world, the idea that Israel and Judah would be united again and go back to the Middle East and have the land that was promised to Abram and all the way out to the Euphrates River and down to the Nile and take all that Middle Eastern territory and have a great kingdom and all the Gentile nations are going to flow to them, that seems outrageous but no more outrageous than what God did here, taking them out of the land that he promised them in perpetuity, bringing them into the Assyrian captivity and then scattering them among the nations of the Gentiles. That's pretty outrageous. And he did that. So I see the faithfulness of God's own word in judgment to be the surety of God's own word in restoration, which is why he would tell Jeremiah, I'm going to be with you to tear down, to uproot, to destroy and to plant, and to build. Because all of that is part of God's plan. Thus says the Lord God, clap your hand, stamp your foot, and say, alas, because of all the evil abominations of the house of Israel, which will fall by the sword, by the famine, and by the plague. Now, just as a little aside, that phrase, clap your hand, these days we think of that as applause. We think of that as, well, well done you. It's good. So I did a little searching. Manners and Customs of the Bible is a book that was written by James Freeman. And he actually, in his book, notes five different meanings for clapping your hands. You can find it on page 305. Go look it up for yourself. He says, that in Job 27.33 and in Lamentations 2.15, clapping your hands is a sign of contempt, which is kind of interesting. Next time you're angry at somebody, just walk right up to them and go, sign of contempt. He also lists Numbers 24.10 and Ezekiel 21, which we're going to see. Actually, there are three different parts of Ezekiel, 14.17 and 22.13 where he says the clapping of hands is a sign of anger. Then he lists it as a sign of sorrow here in Ezekiel 6.11. And then also as a sign of triumph, you're going to see that in Ezekiel 25, where the people are clapping for joy over God. It's also in Nahum 3.19, and it's also the sign of a pledge, like in Genesis 14.22, if in fact lift the hand means to clap your hand. Possibly it's also in Ezekiel 21 that it's a sign of a pledge. So it can be anger, it can be sorrow, it can be triumph, it can be a pledge. But in this case, I believe it's sorrow. Clapping your hands, kind of like pounding your chest. 
kind of like feeling the weight of sorrow on you until you're just clapping your hands. So Ezekiel says, the Lord God says, clap your hands and stamp your feet. (laughs) A sign of sorrow. Stamp your feet and say, alas, because of all the evil abominations of the house of Israel, which will fall by the sword, the famine, and the plague. He who is far off will die by the plague, and he who is near will fall by the sword. And he who remains there in the, in the territory of the northern tribes, he's going to be besieged, and he's going to die by the famine. Thus shall I spend my wrath on them, says the Lord God. Then you will know that I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. When they're slain are among their idols around their altars on every high hill, on the tops of all the mountains, under every green tree and under every leafy oak the places where they offered soothing aroma to their idols. So throughout all their habitations, I will stretch out my hand against them and make the land more desolate and more waste than the wilderness toward Dibla. Thus they will know that I am the Lord. So the Lord is perfectly willing to make sure that his people know who he is. And I even think it's a sign of God's faithfulness that he's told Israel not to do it, and when they did, he's going to restrict them from doing it, whether by death or whether by destroying their temples and their places of worship and their altars and their incense altars. God simply will not allow his people to continue in their rebellion against him, which is really quite remarkable and quite gracious in a very violent sort of way. He's going to do all this bloodshed and destruction, but they're not going to continue their rebellion against him. And the end result of it's going to be that they're going to know that he's God. Now, with all of that, may I read chapter 7 quickly? I'm going to try not to comment too much because it really is very narrative. It really does preach itself. But you needed all that to understand chapter 7. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, And you, son of man, thus says the Lord God to the land of Israel, An end, the end is coming on the four corners of the land. Now the end is upon you, and I shall send my anger against you. I shall judge you according to your ways, and I shall bring all your abominations upon you. For my eye will have no pity on you, nor shall I spare you, but I shall bring your ways upon you, and your abominations will be among you. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, a disaster, a singular, unique disaster. Behold, it is coming. An end is coming. The end has come. It has awakened against you. Behold, it has come. Your doom has come to you, O inhabitant of the land. 
The time has come. The day is near. Tumult rather than joyful shouting on the mountains. Now I will shortly pour out my wrath on you and spend my anger against you. Judge you according to your ways and bring on you all your abominations. My eye will show no pity, nor will I spare. I will repay you according to your ways while your abominations are in your midst. Then you will know that I, the Lord, do the smiting. Behold the day. Behold, it is coming. Your doom has gone forth. The rod has budded. Arrogance has blossomed. Violence has grown into a rod of wickedness. None of them shall remain. None of their multitude, none of their wealth, nor anything eminent among them. The time has come. The day has arrived. Let not the buyer rejoice, nor the seller mourn, for wrath is against all their multitude. Indeed, the seller will not regain what he has sold as long as they both live. For the vision regarding all their multitude will not be averted. Nor will any of them maintain his life by his iniquity. They have blown the trumpet and made everything ready, but no one is going to the battle. For my wrath is against all their multitude. The sword is outside. The plague and the famine are within. He who is in the field will die by the sword. Famine and the plague will also consume those that are in the city. Even when their survivors escape, they will be on the mountains like doves of the valley, and all of them mourning, each over his own iniquity. All hands will hang limp, and all knees will become like water, and they will gird themselves with sackcloth, and shuddering will overwhelm them. And shame will be on all their faces and baldness on all their heads. They shall fling their silver into the streets and their gold shall become an abhorrent thing. Their silver and their gold shall not be able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. They cannot satisfy their appetite, nor can they fill their stomachs, for their iniquity has become an occasion for stumbling. And they transformed the beauty of his ornaments into pride. And they made the images of their abominations and their detestable things with it. Therefore, I will make it an abhorrent thing to them. And I shall give it into the hands of the foreigners as plunder, to the wicked of the earth as spoil, and they will profane it. I shall also turn my face from them, and they will profane my secret place. Then robbers will enter and profane it. Make a chain, for the land is full of bloody crimes, and the city is full of violence. Therefore, I shall bring the worst of the nations, and they will possess their houses. I shall also make the pride of the strong ones cease, and their holy places will be profaned. When anguish comes, they will seek peace, but there will be none. Disaster will come upon disaster, and rumor will be added to rumor. Then they will seek a vision from a prophet, 
but the law will be lost from the priest and counsel from the elders. The king will mourn, the prince will be clothed in horror, and the hands of the people of the land will tremble. According to their conduct, I shall deal with them, and by their judgments, I shall judge them, and they will know that I am the Lord. So God is absolutely jealous for his own worship, for his place of worship, for his means of worship, and once he has chosen a people to himself, he expects those people to remain true and faithful to him and not to commit the harlotries that Israel committed by following after other gods, chasing after foreign forms of worship. And if anybody, thank God, if anybody who belongs to God wanders off and tries that, God corrects them in the most terrible ways. But he corrects them because God doesn't change his mind. God doesn't go, well, they tried. They were trying to worship me, but yeah, there was a little bit of this other worship. Can you see now where Paul would get some of this language in the New Testament where he talks about being true and being faithful to Christ and then talking about people who are preaching a different Christ and a different gospel, a, a heterodoxy that they're bringing about. You can see why Paul keeps saying, stay true to the real thing. Stay true to the right gospel. Stay true to the real Christ. Because God is not above correcting his people. And he'll correct his people any way that he sees fit. Because all people belong to him. And he can do whatever he wants with what's his. So the better part of wisdom would be, if we're going to combine the Sunday morning wisdom stuff, the better part of wisdom would be learn the lesson and stay true to God so that he doesn't have to correct you. Because he's perfectly willing. So now we've read two chapters of Ezekiel that have to do with correcting Jerusalem. Then we've seen two chapters that have to do with correcting the mountains of Israel. So God is holding Judah and Israel individually guilty. And in fact, he's even justifying Israel a little bit because of Judah, who saw what God did to Israel and nevertheless continued in their abominations. So that made them even more guilty because they saw firsthand what God was willing to do. So can you see in these early parts of Ezekiel that God is completely justified in what he's saying, in what he's doing? Not only do you see some grace in there, but you see a, a God who is absolutely righteous and holy and just, who will not allow himself to be profaned. And that's the God you're dealing with. So know that before you start saying, I'm with God. Me and God, we got a real good thing. God's my co-pilot. You need to know right up front the kind of God you're dealing with. You're dealing with a God who is in complete control, who will hold you responsible for his name. That's why I don't like it when I see, like, OMG. I think, you, you don't know what God you're talking about. People who take his name in vain, there's the third commandment. Don't take my name in vain. Don't be doing that. Okay, if he was that jealous for I won't have any other gods before me and don't make any other idols. Don't you think he's just as jealous over don't take my name in vain? Mm -hmm. He's just as jealous for that. 
And there are all these people running around using his name like a swear word. What are you thinking? Not only him, but his son as well, more often than not. Yeah. What God are you dealing with? How many times those are professing Christians who use that language? I know. What do you say to some, like, because, I mean, I have really good Christian friends who will say, oh, Lord, or, you know, but they don't think, they genuinely don't think they're using God's name in vain. Otherwise, they wouldn't do it. That's what they said. They said, it's not you. Well, did you use his name? And did you use it in vain? <laughs> well, they're like they're saying it. Well, I'm using it because you know, like, yeah, because I believe in you know. Because like, I don't know. They somehow like have. have I think a lot of it. I really do think a lot of it has to do with context. I, I have a lot of friends, preacher friends, who when they hear bad news or disaster or something like that, they will say, "Oh, my lord." And, but they genuinely mean they're calling on the name of God. They're calling, oh, my Lord, help, enter into this program. But I think if people are just using Lord to comment on a fumble in a football game, oh, Lord, you know, what has he got to do? He doesn't care, He's, you know. So I think context matters. Anything else? What were you going to say? Have you counted how many times God says, you will know that I am the Lord? Because I think I just counted seven times just in these two chapters. Yeah. And, and that's the fascinating thing to me is how does he demonstrate it? Not through, I'm going to love you so much and give you so much good stuff, and then you're going to know that I'm the Lord. You're going to. I love you and have a wonderful plan for your life. And I have a wonderful plan for your life, and then you're going to choose me as your God. No, instead, he just doles out wrath and punishment. Then you're going to know that I'm God. And a God who's willing to do that isn't a God you want to mess with. Anything else? You get the point? Yes, yep. sir. All right. Say goodbye to the Internet folk. Goodbye. Wow, that was drab. There's only a few of us here. Yeah? Okay, goodbye then. All right, take care. See ya. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.